ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Carl Magnus Palm, welcome. Um, you have written a number of books on ABBA. I was looking at the Wikipedia page and I couldn't work out whether this was number eight or number nine, but you've been, you've written or co-written or been involved with so many. How many ABBA books have you been involved with and what number is this one? Yeah, (laughs) I wish I could tell you. I've lost count myself, but I think, you you know, eight or nine or something like that, depending on how you count. Okay, I want to start with you, because um, you, I believe, are 57 years old. That's true. Yeah, which sort of, I mean, we're we're similar age, I say that, but I'm eight years older than you, so (laughs) there we go. Was that something? No, I'm actually not. I'm six years old. I'm making myself older. What a terrible thing to do. Um, So... But we were brought up in, in similar eras, not exactly the same. You know, um, obviously, my, my teenage experience is uh, a, a bit before yours. Um, but you were in your teenage years during the 70s. Um, and you, I presume, in a sense, you know, you were a young child as the 70s uh, came in. So can you tell me um, a little bit about the type of music your family listened to at that period? and um, what the influences were on you as a young person before you sort of got your own uh, influences yourself? Well, the thing is, I <laughs> the music was a big thing for me, even from the, you know, age of two. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I, I skipped everything else that uh, young children are supposed to do, and I went straight to the gramophone. And uh, there are, you know, there's eight millimeter footage of me playing the record player at age one or two or something like that. Um, so uh, for me, it all started with the Beatles because so I was, even though I was born in 1965, I was a Beatles fan uh, while they still existed. Um, so, so so it was the Beatles, you know, um, the, we had, you know, uh, my dad traveled a lot and I, he bought albums on his trips. And so my oldest sister, she had uh, the Beatles Revolver album, which sort of migrated into my collection <laughs> eventually because it, it transpired that I was this huge Beatles fan. And um, but to answer your question, uh, my mother, she she loved um, Italian music, Italian pop hits of the time of the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, my dad was a jazz fan, but he didn't play jazz very much at home. But we, what we had was a lot of easy listening albums, uh, you know, Herb Alpert and um, 
my mother loved all those, uh, you know, Engelbert Humperdinck type singers, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I mean, that is effectively, I mean, the Italian music of the 50s, 60s and 70s uh, is, is sort of Italian schlager, isn't it? And the German music of that period was German schlager. What was the music of the, um, the 60s and what was the music scene in Sweden during the 60s? Well, in in the sixties, it was like you said, schlager. What we term schlager. I mean, when the Germans say schlager, they mean something very specific for for you know German music like umpa bumpa or very um, saccharine uh, uh, ballads, uh, I guess. But for us, schlager meant at the time because once rock and roll had happened. Uh, uh, it became a dividing point. So everything that wasn't rock and roll or pop, you know, that was schlager. So, so we had a lot of that, um, you know, inspired by, you know, French music or uh, Italian music or, uh, or German. It, it didn't have a lot of rhythm and blues in it, let's put it that way. And uh, so, uh, so we had that, but we also had a lot of pop bands. Like, you know, Benny was in a band called the Hep Stars, which was Sweden's biggest band in the 1960s. And we, we had a thriving pop scene, actually. I think I think a lot of people who are interested in 60s pop music and stuff like that, they're kind of surprised by how many bands we had and how many of them were actually quite good, even though, you know, the English may not be perfect and the lyrics might be a bit strange sometimes. But in terms of performance and, and songwriting was, you know, Fairly, fairly good, high, high standard. I mean, one of my go-to books for Sweden is this, I think it's called Made in Sweden, which is a sort of collection of essays uh, about Swedish music over the years. And it, uh, it, it has one about the dance bands um, of that era. Do you mean those type of bands? Because they had very specific tropes in a way that, you know, they had to have certain elements to be sort of considered in the in this area can you explain that to me right no i i was not speaking about that right. that, that, that was something that became big in the in the 70s more like uh yeah the the dance bands dance band as we call them here which is completely you know when you see uh, when you think of a dance band you see a big orchestra and and you know conductor and uh, a vocalist and uh, you know people this is this is different this is this is uh schlager based and it's very usually very, um, uh, shall we say, kind of mild, uh, you know, virgin on the bland and maybe crossing the line into bland uh, quite often. Uh, it's not very highly regarded in this country by critics and stuff, but it's very, very popular. Um, you know, in the 70s, it was ABBA sold more records than anyone else, but then number two were some of these uh, dance bands. Um, so it's very... It's very hard to explain. Once you hear it, you you understand what it is. But it is it is schlager based. It's very uh, very nice, very non threatening melody based melody based music. A lot of influences also from uh, American country music, things like that. But I was trying to work out when I was uh, reading that whether there was a connection because these tropes. Uh, that I mentioned are, as you say, non-threatening. They were non-political. They were sort of happy music. Uh, they were melod melodic type, you know, um, positive uh, type music. And also in terms of their look, they often dressed up as well, didn't they? So in some <laughs> way, and I just wondered where whether the 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 you discovered whether the roots 
um, of ABBA sort of come from that or are influenced by that, or it is something completely different? It it does in a way. Um, they they I would say that uh, the the dance bands and ABBA they came they both come from have the same roots in uh, in you know old type schlager music 50s and 60s style and then uh developing that into the 19 uh, in the 1970s and if you listen to some of the early abba tracks they were you know a bit like the dance bands the dance band music of the time and there's, you know, it's no coincidence that the, the dance bands love doing ABBA covers. You know, they they <laughs> really went for them. You know, this oh, this will work, and this one will work. Uh, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. I hope I got that right. Um, they that song is like is like what you would hear dance bands in Sweden play at the time. So when was the moment that you heard an ABBA song, and what song was it? I was a pop music fan from a young age um so i heard i actually heard people need love their very first single i do remember that we were on holiday and it was on the radio it was the summer of 1972 i was seven years old uh so that was the first time i heard album and i thought wow you know this this was a nice song you know you're seven years old you don't <laughs> you don't, you don't analyze it beyond that really uh so, so i really like that yeah um just before we go from your childhood to this, um, I want to <laughs> sort of mention the fact that when I was a teenager, you know, my my hero was Bowie. You talked about the Beatles and then, of course, your interest in ABBA as well. Um, my hero was Bowie. And it was not just his music. It was about what he represented, which is sometimes when you're a teenager, you know, that your family is something that you want to get away from. I don't mean that totally negatively, but I think all teenagers go through that phase. And and for me, Bowie represented a world, um, and particularly as a gay man, Bowie represented a world for me where I could go into and be who I really was. And so it meant more for, for me. Which was the band for you that, that represented this other world uh, for you, or was did it represent anything like that? Um, well, the, the thing was, you know, it started it started well for Abba and me back in 1972, and we 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 kept in touch through 1973 because I got the Ring Ring single for my birthday. But then I sort of, you know, went away from Abba, and you know, as you may know, there was a very very negative, uh, a lot of negative press. Uh, uh, towards Faraba in this country, and uh, you weren't supposed to like them. And I was a Beatles fan anyway, so for me, it was Paul McCartney and Wings. I mean, we're talking about um, this is preteen now. My teenage year started in 1979, so towards, well, sorry, 78, so towards the end of the ABBA period, really. To answer your question, though, um, so I, what I got into, I mean, I was a Bowie fan. I was a Bowie fan as a young child. Uh, so, so for him, he was a very important artist for me in the 1970s. Um, but by the time I got into that period of, of, you know, the teenage years when you try to suss out who you are and you want to, like you said, break free from your family and be something else, um, I would say generally speaking, the synth pop bands, you know, I, I started listening to the Human League before they became really big and uh, the orchestral maneuvers in the dark, you know, 
um, those kinds of bands and also, you know, post-punk, whatever, whatever that is, you know, Elvis Costello, I like, like for a while, uh, Simple Minds, um, The Associates uh, was a really, really big band for me. I think probably it might have something to do that they weren't, you know, they weren't among the biggest so I can have them a little to myself, you know. Sounds um, like we have an equally dysfunctional childhood. There, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I love Billy McKenzie. I yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, let's get back to your book, this Aberrant 50. Um, there's a little bit about your childhood there. Um, and this covers uh, the 50 years of ABBA's existence in the sense when they started singing in English. Um, for you, you also write about... Uh, their early years in the book um, and you know it, some of the stories are completely amazing can you take me through the individual members and what their experiences were in their early years yeah um, well all of them all of them started with music really early uh, Bjorn was you know he grew up in, in a town called Vestervik which is on the east coast of Sweden uh, and and he you know, I think he was 11 or something when he got his first guitar. Uh, I don't remember exactly, you know, he was playing skiffle and stuff like that. That was popular in the in, in the 50s. Um, then he joined a band called the, uh, well, that's uh, got the name eventually, the Hootenanny Singers, <laughs> which he hates and hated even at the time. And who can blame him? Uh, and uh, they were they were into American folk music. They got a record contract when Bjorn was 18 and they immediately had a big breakthrough. And that's what he did during the 60s. You know, they went from this American influenced folk music and then do, started doing Schlager and stuff. Uh, Benny was born in 1946. Also, you know, started playing the accordion at age five or six or whatever. Uh, started playing the piano at age 10. Um, and music was immediately became the thing for him. That was, you know, that was the only thing he was really, really interested in. Um, he was, what, what was he? He was 17 or 18 when he uh, joined the Hepstars, another wonderful group name. And they, uh, soon after that, they became very, very big, um, you know, had lots of number one hits. He started writing songs and that was also a turning point for him. You know, when he wrote a song called Sunny Girl, which became a big number one hit here in Sweden. And that was, that's when he sort of realized, okay, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do with my life, write music. Um, then you have Frida, who has, you know, completely different background. The other three members of ABBA had kind of safe middle class or lower middle class uh, upbringings. But she was, you know, the offspring of a German soldier uh, from the occupying forces in Norway. And her mother was a teenage girl. Um, so this was a liaison that wasn't that was frowned upon, you could say. Was it a liaison though? Wasn't, I mean, I read about this, that it was, I mean, it was really horrendous that the German soldier had offered her a bag of potatoes. It was food to, you know, um, because there was no food. Yeah, sex, yeah. Basically. Yeah. And so it's a very dark, terrible story it, in a way. It, it is, it is. I mean, they, they sort of fell in love, I think. Um, so it was you know, a bit more than that. It wasn't just a one night stand. They saw each other several times. 
but then he went back before Frida was born, long before Frida was born. He he left Norway, and they thought for many many years that he had perished, uh, and he only emerged uh, when Frida was famous you know in uh, 1977 she was 32 years old she found out that she actually had a father and they they connected through this german teen pop magazine called bravo which was huge back in those days uh which is also completely surreal but anyway uh they it was hard for them for her mother and her grandmother there was a rumor that her grandmother had also been in cahoots with uh some german soldiers uh, so they had to leave norway for sweden uh before frida was she I mean, she was one years old you know one year old or something like that and then tragically um frida's mother died at age 21 so she had to be brought up by her grandmother here in sweden and you know it was they were rather poor um but you know they had food and uh, they had clothes and all that but they they didn't live a a, a luxurious lifestyle um uh but she for frida it was the same as with the others she sang you know from an early age and also just you know when she was 13 she started singing with a dance band a different type of dance band than the ones we discussed earlier. Uh, and from then on, it was just music, 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 music. That was what she lived for. She married early, had uh, had children as a teenager and so on. But she, you know, the music was the most important thing. Um, and then she had a breakthrough in 1967. So that's when her really, when she became known in, in this country. And then Agneta finally, she was born in 1950. Um, and also she started playing the piano at age five, I think, and wrote her first song when she was six years old. She started writing her own more and more songs in her teens. And she started singing with the dance band. And uh, Agneta recorded um, a, a, a song that she had written herself. She was 17 years old. And she, the song was called Yav Also Shad, which translates as I was so in love. And that became, that went to number one in Sweden. And for people who might not know what a sensation that was, it was very unusual in the, in the 1960s that girls were songwriters and even less so that they were 17 years old and wrote for, for themselves as performers and, became, uh, and that became number one hits. So, so she had like a really, a really good start to her career, let's put it that way. So, and so, yeah, so the, those, those are the backgrounds of the four members. Now, so where did Stig Anderson come into the story? It was with Benny and Bjorn, first of all, wasn't it? When they got together and then I think Stig Anderson brought them to his label. Yes. Um, uh, so, well, Stig, the, the, the relationship uh, starts with Bjorn and Stig because the Hoot and Annie Singers were signed to Stig's uh, record company, Polar Music. Um, so that's where it all starts. So they had a relationship. And then a few years later, um, in 1966, Bjorn and Benny meet. They hit it off. They realize, okay, you're interested in writing songs. Oh, I'm also write, interested in writing songs. Let's try to write a song together, which they do, did very soon after, a song called Isn't It Easy to Say, that was recorded by the Hep Stars. 
it wasn't the world's best song, but it was the start to, to this. And by 1968, 1969, something like that, they had more or less decided, okay, we're going to, we're going to have, we're going to be a team because things were, the Hep Stars had split up and things were cooling off with the Hootman singers. So they had, they had to think about the future. That, that's what the, the, the future they envisioned was the songwriters behind the scenes and, you know, producers, not to be performers. What's and up? so sorry, Stig, to answer your question about Stig. So Stig, Stig's recognized their talent. So he went into partnership with them. Eventually he hired them as record producers for his polar music label. So Stig, Bjorn and Benny, they were kind of like a team. What sort of person was Stig? Because when I read about him, there is a, a sort of another side to him in a lot of ways, it seems. Yeah, there are plenty of <laughs> sides to him. Uh, he, he, uh, he was a very, uh, you know, a very unusual person. He was everything you would want in a manager because he was aggressive. He, he uh, you know, the word no didn't exist for him and when people say you know we can't possibly no that wouldn't work and he, he would say why not let's try it and uh, there's no reason this wouldn't work um but he was also very short-tempered very hot-tempered and uh, in many ways uh, a difficult person to deal with but you know those around him kind of uh, got used to him and his <laughs> his moods and uh, the kind of person he was. He also was a lyricist, wasn't he? In the sense that he used to go to New York and find tracks and translate them on the plane coming back, I read. And so he would, and then, you know, adapt them, I suppose, to make them work in Swedish. Um, so he was more than just a manager, wasn't he, to, to his artists? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he had roots in music as well. He also started early, you know, he wrote the, fir the first song he wrote that would become a hit. He was 16 when he wrote that. And he had been a performer uh, himself. So he knew that side of the business. He wasn't just, you know, a bean counter, you know, he was he was someone who knew what it what it was to write songs and what it was to be an artist. And uh, in the early 60s, he he started a publishing company. And like you said, he started doing this thing with translating, uh, you know, foreign hits and, and you know, writing, writing Swedish lyrics and hopefully it was recorded by someone uh, who, who could make a hit out of it. And, and usually they were. Yeah, because he was more powerful than just uh, the manager in a lot of ways. He was involved in the Sphinx Poppen. TV show, wasn't he? That was the, the the music show in Sweden. So automatically by knowing him, I mean, obviously there has to be talent and a, and a, and a song and everything else, but automatically he had the power to make people um, successful in Sweden. Absolutely. I mean, if, it's, it's interesting. I mean, he was Abba's manager formally, but what he really was, he was the head of the record label. He was the head of the publishing company. And he was, so they had the package that he, he didn't have to bring his band to another record company and say, would you please sign them? They already had, everything was in place. All the all those things were in place. And, and you know, Svensk, Svensk Toppen, he, you know, he, they called him the king of Svensk Toppen because sometimes like more than half the songs on the chart were, had lyrics by him. 
That's amazing. Um, so we've got Benny and Bjorn at Polar Music working with Stig Anderson or under Stig Anderson, you know, and uh, then of course the girls need to come in. So can you tell me about how they uh, got to Polar and eventually into ABBA? Yeah, what happened was in, in 1969, Bjorn was on the West coast of Sweden um, to do a television special. And Agneta was also on that television special. And they they had met before and Bjorn had sort of, hmm, you know, I like that girl. And now he had a chance to, you know, he made his move. And uh, so they fell in love really quickly. I think they moved in together just a couple of months later. And a similar thing happened to, to Benny and Frida around the same time. They were on the same radio show and they, you know, blah, blah, blah. They went out to dinner and they were also living together very soon and got engaged and all that. So, so those two couples were established pretty quickly in 1969. Um, then what happened was that the first thing they did was the thing the following year in 1970, because everyone was doing cabaret at the time, all the Swedish artists who were in the sort of middle of the road area, which uh, the, the ABBA members, all four of them certainly were, um, they, they did the, these cabaret shows, everyone should do them. So what was that? Well, they sang a few songs, then they played a few skits, and the songs should have funny lyrics, there should be like a twist, and you know, that kind of thing. Um, and apparently this show was a bit of a disaster. Uh, they had like five people in the audience sometimes. <laughs> and it was like, okay, now we know what we should not do. This is not for us. We should do something else. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. It seems strange to me that two couples um, would decide to record music together. And I say that only because if you want to bring sort of a strain to a relationship, it, it often when you work together, were they all uh, in agreement about this? Or did, did uh, anybody need to be convinced? Were there any initial sort of, I don't know, initial problems that anybody had about working together? Well, um, if you uh, <laughs> if you read interviews from 1969, the year when they met, uh, you could you know, Bjorn and Agneta were like, mm, you know, well, we better not work together. That would be too much because I think they'd probably recognize that they were both uh, kind of stubborn and kind of not always easy. Uh, to get along with <laughs> so so maybe they wanted to keep the work out of the relationship and I think it was the same for Benny and Frida and after that you know disastrous cabaret show uh, I think Benny and Frida almost broke up uh, because the relationship was going downhill and it was it had been really really troublesome to work together so they were like hmm, well let's see how this works out but I think by the time they decided to record People Need Love in 1972, I don't think anyone had to be convinced. It was just like, well, let's try this and see how it works out. How did they adopt, how did they adopt the roles that they were eventually to have with Benny and Bjorn? You know, you mentioned that the, the both girls, I think, wrote their own music early on. And they were, uh, so, you know, they had this creative 
push to them as well. Um, and uh, but they seem to have adopted roles uh, in ABBA that were, I wouldn't say completely split. That's what's interesting about your book, what you bring out in that. But the roles were to a certain extent split between the guys producing and writing the music and the girls singing. So how did yes. that really come about? Yeah, uh, Frida, Frida didn't write songs at the time, um, but Agneta certainly did. She was quite, quite a prolific songwriter. I think th the thing is that ABBA started, ABBA started as a vehicle for Bjorn and Benny to write pop songs in English and become known abroad. That was, so that was Stig, the, the plan that Stig and Bjorn and Benny had. So the fact that the girls came into the picture, um, that was more like, well, this we'll use them when we record, but this is our project, more or less. That's how it started. And I think it continued like that. Um, Agneta had a first song, or had a song on the first ABBA album, Ring Ring, uh, called Disillusion. But after that, she didn't write uh, anything else. And Bjorn and Ben, it wasn't because Bjorn and Ben stopped her. It, on the contrary, they asked her, don't you want to write something? You know, you're a, you're a good songwriter. You could write something for us. And she she had low self-esteem and she thought, well, my songs aren't good enough or, they, you know, they're not right for ABBA. Um, and yeah, and, and like you said, I, th I think also the ladies were ladies of their time, you know, and probably... The, the feeling I get is that they often would, you know, uh, defer to the to the guys. Oh, the men know they they know best, and we're the, you know they had a lot of input. But at the end of the day, the the, the you know the let let the men control this, and we'll do our bit. Uh, and you know, whereas today, I, I if 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 it had been today, I'm sure Agneta would have been more persistent in, in uh, or, you know, try to offer them something at least. I mean, you say ladies of the time. I mean, the other thing with that is that if you look historically in music, particularly how women were treated uh, during the 60s, um, often, and I'm not suggesting this happened with ABBA, but I'm just asking the question, often they, they would have been ripped off because if the guys were controlling the writing of the music, controlling the producing of the music, and the girls were singing, uh, then the royalty split is really on the side of the guys. Was that the case with with ABBA? Y yes, <laughs> yes, I, I think it was. They had a they had an equal, uh, uh, you know, as recording artists, the group ABBA. They had they had equal equal shares, obviously, in, in the royalties. But then Bjorn and Benny had a producer's royalty, and uh, and obviously as songwriters, they had additional income. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm. I, I, but then, from uh, the mid '70s somewhere, they were all four of them were part owners of the record company Polar Music. So the, the ladies were brought in. They were they were part of the business setup. Uh, but of course, in the long term, um, it, it was you know uh, I, I'm sure the guys made more money. Yeah. The. Um... I think what you know, you said something very interesting about them that their goal was to become, or Stig and Benny's goal was it? You, you mentioned that their their goal was to become uh, international and to write um, music in the uh, with lyrics in the uh, English language. 
and to become an international success. But it it didn't work initially, did it? It was it actually took quite a long period. It did, and that's that's why you know whatever else he may have been, Stig Anderson, he was he was stubborn. You know, he didn't give up. You know, they had the first single, "People Need Love." He it was you know most countries said no to it. It was released in the United States on Playboy Records. Playboy had a Playboy magazine had a record label at the time. And they wanted this and they put, you know, Bjorn and Benny with Svenska Flicka, uh, which means Swedish girl. It was, you know, you can you can imagine what kind of what kind of images they were trying to conjure up, you know, with the <laughs> with the, you know, Playboy. Uh, and and it, it it you know it 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 climbed to number 114 on some charts you know, but it wasn't a hit really. Um, and then then they tried yeah you know, so so there were a lot of setbacks. Then the 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 next year they had a song called Ring Ring in 1973, which they entered into Melody Festival, and which is our selection to the Eurovision Song Contest. And everyone thought, "Wow, this song is so catchy!" You know, and they were favorites to to win, and it would be you know now you know now now is our chance here. And they finished third uh, in Melody Festival, and so obviously they didn't go to Eurovision, but they were vindicated because they they were they had the biggest hit in Sweden that year, you know, forget Melody Festival, forget Eurovision, they had the biggest success of anyone in Sweden in 1973. So, and I think that was only then that they sort of decided, the four of them, that, oh, we should make this group permanent, we should we should go on working with this and, and phase out everything else. I mean, in life, we learn from failure more than we learn from success. So in that sense, it wasn't, a, you know, a big failure because you say that they, you know, they had a massive hit from it, uh, but they'd entered and they hadn't won. So they hadn't got through uh, to Eurovision. Um, and the next time uh, they entered, they obviously had to make a lot of other choices based on what hadn't worked before. So what difference uh, was that approach and why do you think it worked? Well, I think the main reason that it worked was that the jury system here in Sweden changed because in 1973 it was a it was an so-called expert jury, a jury of of you know people, music journalists and others, you know, songwriters, performers, people like that who were supposed to know music, and they favored a more complex song that was good, very good song, but less suitable for for Eurovision. Uh, in 1974, you had a jury. Uh, uh, that consisted of, uh, you know, a cross-section of Swedish people, basically. And, you know, so so they had that in their favor. But they also, I think Stig Anderson said, well, it was actually a good thing that we didn't make it in 1973, because it, it gave us another year to, be, to make us even more prepared. Um, and this time they decide, well, we're not going to take any chances at all. So instead of, you know, uh, Anita was dressed, you know, she had a maternity blouse in 1973, but she before ringing on television. Uh, and this year she, they were all wearing these, uh, you know, outrageous glam rock costumes. Um, and so and Bjorn had this star shaped guitar, you know, they were, they were not taking any chances, you know, visually. 
when they performed Waterloo. Um, yeah. But um, Stig had already gone to other European territories before with that song, hadn't he, to actually help get that known and so get the votes, I suppose, and get the interest. What, what did he do? Yeah, well, what, what he did was that, um, you know, Ring Ring became a big hit in this country and Stig was actually able to sell that to a lot of countries in Europe specifically. Uh, and it became a hit, you know, it was number one in Belgium and things like that. Um, so when he came with Waterloo, he already had a relationship with these, with these, uh, with record companies in these countries. Uh, so, so he, the, the moment, the moment they had won Melody Festival on the Swedish selection, or the day after, he, you know, he went on a plane and he went, you know, visited six countries in two days, I think. Went to all these record companies and said, here's Waterloo, this is what they look like. We're going to be in Eurovision. We're going to be wearing crazy costumes. Our conductor is going to dress up as Napoleon. You know, we're going to make an impression. This song is great. And, you know, oh, wow. Oh, okay. You know, um, so everyone was prepared when they won with Waterloo then. Uh, it was like pushing a button because he had prepared everything. Everyone in all these countries knew what they needed to do with this song. Um, so that was really clever. I remember, you know, at that time, I think I was 15 and sitting at home with, you know, with my mum watching TV. And when you consider everyone else who was in that show, suddenly this was like, it was so phenomenal in contrast to what else was in there. And in contrast to even Katie Boyle, who was who was the host. It was, it was such <laughs> a different era. Do you know what I mean? And here came these sort of, in my terms at that point, we know glam rockers because of their outfits. You know, yeah. they, they look like Sweet or, you know, a sort of yeah. band of, yeah, of, yeah. of that ilk. Can you remember the night that you watched it and how you felt watching that, what went through your head? Oh, I do. I do remember that. I do remember that. Um, I, you know, I, th I thought it was great. Obviously, I do. I, I don't remember so much about my reaction to seeing it because obviously I'd already, I already knew what they looked like because I'd seen them on, on the Swedish selection. But I do remember, you know, shouting like, "Oh, Sweden won! Sweden won! Sweden won!" Uh, and watching it, watching it today, of course you can really tell how different they were from everybody else and from what had gone before. Uh, like you said, you know, these glam rock costumes and everyone else was, you know, wearing evening gowns or new tuxedos or some, some, you know, nondescript unisex type things, you know, and they were, they, they looked like they meant business. Let's put it that way. I talked to Madeline Bell recently from Blue Mink and uh, I think she mentioned you. She said a Swedish journalist said <laughs> that uh, that Blooming were very influential to ABBA from their harmonies and so on and so forth. Um, can you explain that? Was that true? Did they look to Blooming or bands like that at the time? They did. Well, their very first single, their very first single, People Need Love, was inspired by Blooming because what Blooming did was they they had. Uh, uh, Roger Cook and they had Madeline Bell trading verses and then coming together in the choruses and so Bjorn and Benny thought wow we could do we could do something like that that's that's nice um, 
so uh, so that's what they did with people need love um and then but that type of music in general was what they were aiming for at that time 72 73 uh there was a group called middle of the road you know chirpy chirpy cheap cheap and sole sole and all those uh hits and possibly the you know the new seekers um who had also been in eurovision um so that kind of family friendly but still poppy type of of group that's that that was what they first uh well we can do that that that's <laughs> that that was the first uh, sort of uh well inspiration i mean many people think of abba as you know just pop and so on um but their songs are actually sometimes quite complex and benny and bjorn the way they they um would create a song and this tonal quality would change in the song um, can you explain what they used to do? Because that was part of their success to a certain extent, wasn't it? The way the way those songs worked. Yeah. Um, well, it's hard to, to explain in, in words, but but I mean, all, all I can tell you is that they worked really hard on them, and they they wanted something. Uh, they they were inspired by all sorts of things. You know, they didn't close the door to. To anything that appealed to them, um, you know, they liked Benny in particular. Loved classical music, so you can hear a lot of that in, in their pop music. But never, never to the extent that the classical influences took over. But it was there as a, as a color. Um, so basically, but but their songwriting was completely intuitive. They just sat there. Oh, that, that's a nice melody line. Let's ma- try to marry that melody line with this melody line and see if if, it, if 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 it becomes complete. Like you say, it's much more complex than you think. You think you listen to Mamma Mia and you think, oh, that's you know, I could write that, but probably you couldn't uh, <laughs> because it's. Uh, I don't think that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, because it's so. It's much more, there are so many intricate things going on and the way they balance uh, the, the verses with the choruses and, you know, things like that. Their success was also as a video band. Um, and uh, videos were obviously invented as promotion. And for them, it was a way because they became successful in Australia. And of course, they couldn't go to Australia every week and be on a TV show. They created a a video. So how much importance do you put down to not only the visual aspect of ABBA, which you've mentioned a bit, but also in terms of their videos and how their videos express what we think about ABBA today? Yeah, (laughs) well... Um, in some countries, like in Sweden, for instance, those those promo clips were hardly ever shown uh, on TV. So here they had very little impact. In but then if you go to a country like Australia, where they it was like night and day because they showed those promo clips, and it was it was the Mamma Mia promo clip that gave ABBA their big breakthrough there, and you know had ABBA mania and all sorts of stuff go, going on there. They became huge. Um, 
Uh, I know Bjorn has said sometimes that in, in European countries, for instance, they weren't so keen to show the promo clips because they thought, well, you could actually come over. <laughs> you could hop on a plane and do this TV show. Um, so I think maybe it's more in retrospect that it's that it's colored our view of ABBA with these, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Agneta in profile and Frida, you know, face on and uh, and. Uh, well, not only that, but the fact is that they are a bit of an enigma. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I know them through their videos. I mean, okay, I've yeah. met Benny and Bjorn. I haven't interviewed uh, uh, the women, but I've interviewed the guys. And um, I don't know, or I haven't known a lot about them. And this is something that I realized when I read your book, yeah. <laughs> that I'm finding out so much about ABBA that I didn't know because almost like I've conflated the whole story in my head from articles and things over the years, but particularly from the videos and my feeling of what the interpersonal relationships are and how the songs reflect their lives and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, they they left. Yeah, they they did leave a lot to their audience to sort of imagine for themselves. Um, in those videos, particularly the later videos, like the winner takes it all, where you see where everyone knows that Agneta and Bjorn are uh, real life divorcees. And here Agneta is playing the lonely abandoned woman while the other three are laughing and having fun. And she, but that's heartbreaking to watch. Yeah, it is, it is heartbreaking. <laughs> it is heartbreaking. But that's that's how we how we in a way how we learned about Abba and who they were and how they felt about things, because they particularly I think in uh, in interviews outside Sweden, they weren't particularly open-hearted. Maybe they didn't find it so easy to express themselves in English and whatever other language. Um, well, so... I think also that they they were for uh, you know I remember watching them on on British TV, and I this was my idea of of Sweden. You know what I mean? And you you mentioned you know Agneta as the beautiful blonde. Swede, you know that sort of fills that one, um, and then you've uh, you've got the the language and the sort of closeness, which is how people often have imagined what uh, Swedes are like from from outside. So they sort of fulfilled um, the cliche of of Sweden to a certain extent, but they also you never really found out anything about them in interviews. No, no, they were they were. They, they <laughs> if you if you read Swedish interviews, you would have found out a lot more. But when you when you read or interviews or when you listen to interviews on TV, and it's, I mean the questions they were asked on British TV were often of not a very high standard. It was like, <laughs> oh, you always dress so nice. What do you like wearing in your spare time? And and things like that. It was just very 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 strange uh line of questioning because i think also maybe they were the type of artists that weren't expected to have anything interesting to say beyond what they were wearing um but yeah uh they were they were they were I, they must have seemed i mean and that that famous picture on the greatest hits album the park bench picture where you see uh, Benny and Frida embracing Anna Agneta and Bjorn sitting there like oh 
uh, we, there's some trouble going on here. We're not, we're not very happy. I mean, people must have projected all sorts of fantasies on that. You know, who's sleeping with who, and and you know uh, what's going but, on. But did there. they know that? Did they actually do that purposely? You know, were these things done? You know, one of us is lonely. The day yeah. before you came. Do you know what I mean? Those videos really express the pain that you feel in, you know, yourself in a relationship when you have a breakup. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they thought about that. I think they, I think they were very unaware of how they were perceived. Beyond, I think their their bugbear was that the people kept talking about the money all the time, all these other things. They. Um, yeah, this big, it... like Volvo were the biggest export and they were the second biggest export. Was, <laughs> yeah. that, was that true? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> the thing was that, um, uh, not to be, to be completely boring about this, but in simple terms, in percentage, Abbas Polar Music, the, the, their company, they had in percentage terms, their profit was, was much bigger than Volvo's. So... And that was sensational, but but in terms of you know dollars and cents, obviously Volvo was much much bigger, and there were many companies that were much much bigger than than Polar and and ABBA. Now they didn't have um, outward, and I mean in the press, in in my terms, maybe in Sweden they did, but they didn't have outward political opinions. They weren't you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They weren't you know the the bands that uh, I was used to interviewing. They, they weren't to that extent. And they were perceived as boring. Mm. Um, but when I met Benny and Bjorn, they were highly interesting and, and highly entertaining and, and, and really nice people and fascinating. Um, did you find that with, with the band that they had one, percep you know, one perception to the outside world, which was a little bit boring and something different um, and I, I suppose um, not so conventional um, when you met them, because you must have met them so many times. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I haven't, I haven't met the ladies uh, many times, just a few, a few times. But Bjorn and Benny, I've met them several times over the years. And they, I mean, they, they are not these, you know, bland people with no opinions. Uh, in fact, it, latterly, uh, Bjorn has become this this guy who writes these opinion pieces in the in the in the newspapers, and you know he, he enters the 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 debate on uh, you know um, euthanasia is that the word uh, about uh, whether we should have uh, you know physical money or not, religious issues, all sorts of things. Immigration. When I talk to him, it's really a you know at that period in Sweden and he was saying you know everyone should come to Sweden it was he was you know quite uh, politically and socially aware and out there and I found that incredibly positive for someone of his stature to be able to say that absolutely the thing was back in the 70s they felt well because we had a lot of political music in Sweden at the time and they felt well you know we don't want to go get into that we want to what we want to do we is we want to make music and we want to sing about personal relationships uh and that's that's all there's to it and we don't want to uh, we don't want to shout our, uh, our you know, our uh, political opinions from the rooftops or anything like that, because that was the um, that was the tradition they were in as artists. 
if from the 60s they were oh we're entertainers end of story they weren't you know the beatles or bob dylan or the stones or anyone who came after them who were like you know taking drugs and uh, you know experimenting with lsd or or you know uh writing give peace a chance you know uh, towards the end of of abba's career you can hear that they, they become a bit more political they write songs about the cold war and about soviet dissidents and they even you know made some public statements statements about certain political issues um but, but, you know, during the ABBA years, no, that wasn't on the agenda. I mean, ABBA on LSD is going to be an image that I will never <laughs> get out of my head. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. But I want to come to the point where they were so successful. I mean, they they really, you know, I mean, to be honest, it's grown and grown and grown. But there was uh, the period in the first, let's say, the first incarnation of ABBA uh, up till about 82 or whenever it was that they just sort of went their separate ways. But uh, there was a period where they were so phenomenally successful. How did each of them deal with that those sort of pressures that fame bring? Um. I think for, for Bjorn and Benny, it wasn't too hard. Um, they had been through it in the 1960s because both their bands were hugely popular. So they, you know, screaming girls, autograph seekers, you know, groupies to a certain extent. Uh, they'd all been through that kind of thing, that kind of adulation. So when when it happened, this happened with ABBA or for ABBA in the 1970s, they had... Uh, I think Bjorn told me I was, you know, it was like the 60s, but bigger. That was the only difference. And also the girls were the, the or were the focal points of the group. They were, you know, let's be honest, you know, uh, if you if you asked anyone uh, who are your favorite members in ABBA, it would be Agneta and Frida. And they don't care about the guys so much um, because of their sex appeal and they were the lead singers and everything. Um, and I think it was particularly for Agnetta, it was it was it was hard because but she I think, was objectified, wasn't she, in a lot of ways, you oh, know, absolutely. like best bum of the year or whatever, you know, those sort of those sort of things. And, and she was much more objectified than Frida. So that must have had an impact on oh, her. Ab- absolutely. I mean, she was she was blonde. She was I guess she was the sexual fantasy of the you know the Swedish girl she she kind of with with her blonde hair and everything she was like oh yeah this is Swedish sin uh personified you know uh, uh, so, so people projected all kinds of things on her like that and she also had because she sang I think also because she sang so many of those heartbreak songs like SOS and and uh, the wind takes it all and one of us you know people kind of oh you know she oh they're, they're, you know, I want to protect her, you know, I can, oh, you know, whereas Frida, Frida was more the regal diva, I think, she was, she was, she was a bit more like that, uh, and, uh, but it was, you know, Frank, Frank Nieta, she, she got more fame than she bargained for, that's my impression, it became too much for her, I mean, even before ABBA had, had their, you know, international breakthrough with Waterloo, there are interviews with her when she said, oh, you know, it's becoming so big, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, putting on a black wig and, you know, sunglasses just so people won't recognize me. And this is when they're famous in Sweden, nowhere else. Um, and f- for Frida, 
I think she was more because she hadn't really had any success before ABBA. So for her, it was like, wow, uh, not that not success on the level that the others had, uh, had had. So for her, I think it was, wow, I'm famous, you know, and I love being on stage and it's so great. And she was out and about. She was clubbing, da, 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 you know, she was a you know, celebrity here uh, and everything. But she also said afterwards that, you know, the, it, her relationship with Benny was so it was it was it was it was like a part of the of the abba thing so where does the relationship end and abba start it was just part of the same thing and uh, she she said uh she said uh afterwards that after abba you know she made a couple of soul albums but then she felt well you know i actually i need to withdraw from the from the music business i i need to piece myself together because what we went through was so uh there was such a lot of pressure there and you know her marriage breaking up both their marriages breaking up while the group was still working and expected to you know be on tv and go on photo sessions and uh, and all that can i ask you about frida and just maybe give you an opinion because i've interviewed so many pop stars over the years and and even in my own life, my father didn't have much contact with me. And my mother told me he actually had nothing to do with me the first years. And I think that I ended up being on MTV because I was looking for some love. And if I draw a comparison between me and other people I've talked to and Frida, is there is the possibility that, that maybe because of how she came into the world, the fact that her mother died and being brought up by a grandmother and all those things that she went through in her past, that maybe this was the uh, substitute from the love that she never had, which is why uh, she enjoyed it for a time and then it turned. Do you think that could be a possibility? Have they ever talked about stuff like that? Um, I'm, I'm not sure she has mentioned that, but if you look at her life story, um, it, it looks pretty obvious for me that, you know, she was she was looking for confirmation, and she was she was looking for she she was drawn to men who could be like father figures to her in in a sense it, it, you know part of the appeal of benny i think was that he was so stable and grounded in himself um um so so yeah it's definitely in her case it was you know i i seek confirmation i i you know i want to be seen and heard uh, the love that i couldn't get from because the relationship with between her and her grandmother grandmother wasn't very physical uh it was like you know okay you have all the material comforts that you need but they didn't have the you know mother daughter relationship that that she craved i mean after um abba and frida had this uh, i mean well she had a very big success at the beginning and then of course the second album uh, didn't work agnetha went off and, and recorded as well um but agnetha later on um, there is this horrendous story with the stalker, the German stalker that lived next door. Um, and it's just such a bizarre story. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah, he was he was uh, he was a Dutch stalker, actually. Ah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. They're normally German. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, base, yeah, yeah. The Ace base uh, one. I'm trying to live in Germany. I shouldn't say that. Let's <laughs> let's let's put the blame where, where it belongs. Uh, no, yeah. but but seriously though, no. Well, she, she uh, he um, he entered a relationship uh, with her. He went to uh, he went to the the area where he lives, and he rented a house close to her, and he started, you know courting her basically 
uh, buying flowers and writing letters. And, and she decided, okay, well, maybe he's a bit odd, but uh, I'd like to get to know him. And, and apparently they started a relationship. And then eventually she realized, well, this is not going to work. Um, so she broke it off. And that's when, when it turned, you know, nasty. And he, he wrote 84 letters or something to her. And he, he showed up outside her window and, and she had to file a, a restraining order. She had to go to court to sort of uh, get rid of him. So that was, that was an odd, odd period. So let's get back to, let's get back to, they've, they've gone their separate ways. Each of them, you know, Benny and Bjorn have gone on to be successful with chess and they've done those sort of things. And uh, uh, Frida and Agneta have, in a sense, they haven't gone into obscurity. I mean, Agneta chose a little bit of obscurity, I think. Um, but Frida um, had a very different life. When did the point come um, where the first wave of... Uh, Abba being loved again <laughs> suddenly rose up and when did the point came for them where they decided or they got much more involved in what the future of Abba could be yeah I mean I, I've, the, the 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 gay the uh, the gay scene was where where the Abba revival started because as we as we all know <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh, ABBA fans who were of certainly on my generation, born in the mid sixties, um, they grew up to be gay men, and they obviously recognized that in each other. So when they were in their twenties and they started going out to clubs, um, and probably maybe the DJs were uh, their age. Okay, so we play "Gimme Gimme Gimme Man" after midnight. You know, people are going to like that for for several reasons. You know, <laughs> and and so it started that in the late eighties, I think, and then and then you have the big year of nineteen ninety two with um, Erasure. Uh, and then, you know, uh, your MTV interview <laughs> with Bjorn and Benny uh, and, you know, Abba Gold. Um, so that's that's when it explodes. But I think they were they tried to keep a certain distance from it to start with, because, you know, they were like, well, Bjorn and Benny, certainly we've moved on. You know, that was you know, we're proud of what we accomplished with ABBA, but that was pop music. And now we're writing serious musicals about, you know, the Cold War and, and you know, Swedish immigrants and blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, then but I, then I think towards the late 90s, at, at least Bjorn and Benny started embracing it more because Mamma Mia came along, the musical. Uh, and, and when that became huge, I think they realized, well, let's just embrace this. Let's let's be a part of this. Let's let's have fun with it and be proud of it and just go with the flow. For the ladies, I think it was maybe it took longer to sort of accept that. Um, I don't know, really, because I don't think they've talked about it so much. But I think they, they you know, happy and proud and all that. But maybe. I mean, it's no, it's no coincidence, I think, that Bjorn and Benny have been the main spokesman for ABBA. It's always been them. Uh, you know, nine times out of ten, it's been either Bjorn or Benny, usually Bjorn, talking to the media about ABBA, whereas, whereas the, the ladies have sort of kept a low profile. But, what, you know, that you mentioned that the, the, the gay community, you know, always um, loving ABBA. And um, 
not to disagree with what you say about the give me, give me man out of midnight, which is the fun aspect of like <laughs> that. But it's about um, a lot of gay people really like the diva uh, and what the diva represents. And, and also that the diva automatically, and I include Elton Johnning as the diva as well, has a tragic, in a sense, a tragic existence. And, um, and I think that sort of fed into not only the fact that the you know that the that the ladies in Abba did have some sort of tragedy in their life and and had that existence, but also that the songs represented the tragedy of love as well. So I think that the connection, in a sense, was much much greater and much deeper. Oh, certainly. Oh, abs- absolutely. I mean, if you wanna if you wanna talk in. Uh... Uh, you know, if, if, if want to talk in terms of who they were, I mean, uh, Agneta obviously was the Judy Garland of of Abba. You know, uh, that 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 you know, the sense of tragedy and the songs she sang was always, you know, and she like you know, people say this, she was crying with her voice. All the lyric, I mean, all the almost all the lyrics that she was sad or she was desperate or she was completely devastated. You know. And then you had, you know, you know, had a bit more regal diva with Frida. She was, there was also, there was heartbreak, but there was more resolve in, in the lyrics that she sang. You know, know me, know you, there's nothing we can do. We just have to face it. This is tragic, but we, we you know, we have to move on. So she was, you know, she's, if Agneta was like, oh no, I, you know, I give up, you know. <laughs> It, it, the personas, Frida, Frida was more like, okay, w- this is tragic. My heart is broken, but I'm going to move forward. That kind of thing, which also, you know, appeals to a lot of gay men because it's, it's the gay experience for, for certainly for our generations uh, a lot of the time, you know, with, uh, for various reasons. Um, and then, you know, the other aspects is obviously the disco music and the, you know, uh, they had so many dance friendly tracks and, you know, the lyrics were about clubbing and, and picking up someone, uh, you know, on the dance floor and whatever else. And the, but, but certainly I think, I think the main appeal is, uh, is Agnes and Frida. Have you got a few more minutes? Because I don't want I'd really love to carry on a bit. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, One of the fascinating things I think is after this um, split, of course, Benny and Bjorn go their separate way, as it were, and do their thing. And then you've got uh, Frida and Agneta. And um, the feeling is that there isn't any contact during that period. Is that true? Did they have occasional contact? Because if they were in charge of the uh, the rights and the record company, they must have uh, communicated during that period. Are, are you talking about Bjorn and Benny now? or, or No, the, all the four of them, the group. Right, right. Well, well, well what, what happened was that... Um, uh, they were part owners in the record company, all four of them, but by 1984, between 82 and 84, the four of them, you know, successively, sort of one, one after the other, sold their interests in Polar, back to Polar, back to Stig. Um, so all they had after that was, you know, royalty reports. That, that was their connection to, to ABBA as an entity. Um, Bjorn and Agneta, obviously, I mean, Bjorn moved to England, but Bjorn and Agneta had two children together. So they obviously had contact through that. Um, Frida was building her own new life. And 
I my impression is that if she was in Sweden, she would say hello. She would come into the office, you know, Benny's offices, and say hello. I don't think after the first few years, I don't think there was any bad blood really. I don't think. I think everyone, okay, you have a new partner and I have a new partner and everything is fine and we can still be friends. And uh, But they certainly didn't, I don't think they socialized in that sense. Didn't they sue Stig Anderson at one point? They did, they did because, um, well, that's a long story, but what happened was this was in 1990 um, and he was selling all his companies, the record company, the public music publishing, everything. And when he did that, it was discovered that the royalty rate they were, because they were on the 3% royalty rate, and there had been some negotiations back in 84 or something, I think, where it was agreed that uh, they would have a a higher royalty rate after that, uh, after a certain date. And he hadn't, in their perspective, he hadn't honored that agreement, whereas he said, well, that agreement was, uh, you know, based on the fact that, on on the condition that uh, ABBA would record together again, which they never did. So, well, you didn't do that. So I'm not going to, you know, you're not going to get a high royalty rate. Uh, So there was a dispute about that and it had to be resolved in court. So that was a, that was a really sorry, sad and sorry end to, to their relationship. I went to the Dennis Pop um, Music Awards. Uh, When would that have been? About six months ago? I don't know, about June or something. I don't know, before that in Sweden. And um, what was interesting, there was a presentation about ABBA sales and how Mamma Mia had affected the sales. And basically, over the years, because of all the um, other projects that have come up, you know, including Abba the Museum, uh, Mamma Mia, and obviously the uh, Voyage, the latest, that their sales of their back catalogue have massively gone up today to how the sales of their back catalogue were after their first existence. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, the 80s were the, you know, the dark ages for, for, uh, for ABBA. No one was particularly interested. It wasn't cool to like ABBA. They, you know, they weren't really, uh, no, one, no one wrote about them. No one interviewed them as ABBA members, really. And uh, there were, you know, all these, the music was licensed out it seemed to anyone who would you know would pay for it and it was packaged you know very shoddily you know cassette tapes and uh compilations banged together without any thought um so definitely because the music like you say through mamma mia and all these other projects it's become much bigger now uh, than it was back in the day. I mean, Abba Gold has sold 32 million, more than 32 million copies. And I think the best-selling copy, the best-selling album they had back then was sold 10 million or something. Um, so it's all of those. And, you know, but, but Abba, you know, it, it has become a franchise. You, you know, you can almost call it a franchise because you have Mamma Mia, you have Mamma Mia the movie, you have Mamma Mia the party, which is this dinner restaurant, uh, you know, show concept. Like you said, you have the museum, you have Voyage, you have so many things that kind of remind people of, you know, oh, don't forget ABBA, you know, as if. 
<laughs> when they came back together, how easy was it for them to gel in some way? Because obviously they had to come back together and then they would make a decision about making music, which I presume came a bit later. Uh, but how was it for them uh, to actually meet again with all this history behind them? Well, it's hard for me to, I mean, I wasn't there. I, mean, I haven't been there <laughs> at the meetings. But, but you talked to them so much. Well, from, from, what, from what they've said, I think, I think it's, it, it all felt very natural because obviously after 40 years, they've gone through all kinds of ups and downs in terms of their relationship with their ABBA legacy, uh, their, their relationship, you know, within the group. Uh, how they relate to the different four different members. I mean, uh, so working together, what they said was once they started recording together, it was like, oh, we were in the studio yesterday and now we're here again. It's like no time had passed at all. Everyone, you know, okay, Frida's, you know, everyone was where they was, were supposed to be behind the microphones or behind the mixing desk uh, and things like that. So I think, you know, it just felt very, is strange, but at the same time, very natural. I mean, one of the strengths of ABBA were obviously the voices, the women's voices, um, and uh, the harmonies that were created, uh, and the strength through these voices. And what was surprising to me, because your voice does get weaker as you get older, um, and it doesn't really seem to notice. It's got a little bit deeper, I think, and that's it. Yeah, it's it's a deeper, and it sounds it sounds their their voices sound a little more frail here and there, but 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 that's only I think that's only attractive, you know. That's just just a a different version of Agneta and Frida, but it's still it's still them. They haven't they clearly you know haven't destroyed their voices with drink and drugs, and you know uh, <laughs> with the years they've they've kept in shape. So yeah. yeah. It's a, a fascinating, it's a fascinating book. As I said, it really had things in that, you know, that I didn't know at all. And I, I wouldn't count myself as a massive ABBA fan, but I've definitely, um, uh, in, I definitely like ABBA. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? But I'm not like, you know, a maniac ABBA fan, but I, I like ABBA definitely. And I really like so many of their songs. And, and as you say that what you realized um, from doing these, interviews and going back and actually you know for this book was to see that the girls had a, a real contribution um to the music um and they would input in the recording studio what else came out of uh compiling this book that made you realize that there was something more about abba that, that you initially knew from all these other books that you'd written Oh dear. Um, well, I'm not sure there was anything in anything really new to me as a as a writer. Uh, it's yeah, it's hard to say. There are so many things about them that are that are special. Um, nothing. No, I would say nothing really new. I mean, I, as I was writing the final chapter, which is all about their comeback, you know, and the voyage thing, the album and the uh, avatar, digital avatar show. Um, I, I was like, God, this did, I, I mean, I, I still couldn't believe that it had happened. You know, because they'd said for so long, you know, we get along fine. We're not enemies. We don't hate each other. 
But ABBA was then, and this is now, and we're leading our lives. And you know, the the, the ladies had more, you know, re, more or less retired from show business. And so that that was the you know the surprise. I was surprised even as I was writing it. Oh, did this really happen? Yeah, it did happen. They did record that album. It's just uh, amazing to me. I mean, so you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you know, about my interview when I when I went over to Sweden and went to their studio. And and I think the studio, the roof come off, didn't it? I can't remember now. So I have this mm. idea that the roof sort of would open, which I was very impressed with at the time. <laughs> the, um, but uh, I remember at MTV, because this is the era of grunge and, uh, you know, this sort of uh, an MTV often about the people that work there would be into, you know, credible music and everything. And I was a bit of outsider in terms of saying, well, I'd like you know i love abba and i love the erasure versions and so on and so forth um how do you think their credibility has grown over the years and how are they perceived today in relation to how they were perceived in their heyday oh uh, i mean it's it's undergone a massive change it's been it's, it's completely different now i mean okay even even back in the day it wasn't all bad reviews. They got they got you know quite a lot of good reviews. They were um, their their musicianship and their expert songwriting was recognized, but as an entity, um, it wasn't anything that your average music journalist at the time wouldn't would want to identify with, and probably not today uh, either. But as you know, grunge was probably the last time, I guess, when it was like, oh, we really mean it, man. You know, that that kind of thing was felt to be important. Today, it's just a smorgasbord of, you know, music and everyone picks and chooses however they want. You know, they listen to they listen to Kurt Cobain one minute and then they listen to ABBA the next and it's nothing strange to them. Um Exactly. I don't, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah. And Kurt was Kurt Cobain was a huge ABBA fan. Uh, I, you know, so. Um, so but today they are recognized as one as uh, one of the big acts, one of the big popular music acts, and you can't ignore them. You can't ignore the, the, the quality of their best recordings uh, and so on and so forth, whereas they i mean they were some of the things they wrote in the in the, especially in the british music press in the 1970s was you know really 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 bad stuff it was really condescending stuff and uh uh like they were like they were you know a gang of robots or something like like you know uh, you know uh <clears throat> four stepford wives except two of them were male that kind of thing um no, so today it's it's completely different, but it's it's interesting because I started writing about ABBA about the same time when you did that interview on MTV. That's when I started, you know, going in depth on my research. And people said to me at the time because my, my first book was a book called ABBA: The Complete Recording Sessions, which was about their how they wrote and recorded their music, and you know, going in depth on that. And I remember some people said to me when I was saying, "Oh, oh you you better hurry up with that before the ABBA revival ABBA revival dies down." I was like, yeah, well, we'll see about that. And then, uh, and then there was, you know, a second wave in the late '90s, and people were saying, well, well, you know, yeah, you, you, well, you have a book coming out. Well, you have, you, you better get it out before the revival dies down. But after that, since then, I haven't heard that. And 
also at that time it was like why do you want to write about Ava? And you could you could feel you know that that's what, why a klutz like me got to got to take this positions the position that I still have is because no one else was doing it. No one else was interested. Now, thirty years later, I see all these you know credible music journalists going out there and you know talking about Ava and interviewing Ava, and and so it's 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 completely different. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, what's your favorite ABBA track? Oh, God. Uh, if I have to choose one, I usually choose The Winner Takes It All. Uh, that's, 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 my, that's one I return to, but I have so many. I mean, you know, I could, I, I could compile a top 10 for you, and that would be more fair. <laughs> but let's say The Winner Takes It All, yeah. Yeah, I want to say, give me a man after midnight, but actually it's not. It's, <laughs> it's, the uh, message is nicer. <laughs> it. It's definitely the day before you came, which I just absolutely adore. I think it's just such a great track and the tone of it and the quality of it. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's um, up there. It's up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just a really brilliant track. Um, yeah, well, I want to thank you because this has been a fascinating talk. Your book is in, incredible and it really is, for anyone who's interested in ABBA in the slightest to find out much more um, about them. And uh, I think unless you're an absolute, you know, ABBA maniac, you're not going to know half the things <laughs> in the in the book. Um, so thank you for writing this book. And thank you also, because I think it's really important that there's a real contribution to music history from journalists like yourself. So Carl Magnus Palm, Thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to many more books about Abel and the revival continuing over the next years. Thank you so much, Steve. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this chat. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.